0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Hal. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. <laughs> I am from Washington, D.C., and I do have an attitude of gratitude because i got a long gratitude list. At the top of my gratitude list this week is the being very grateful to the committee and all of you for the privilege and pleasure of being with you here this fantastic weekend. Your cordial and generous hospitality is deeply appreciated, believe me. I'm especially grateful to Marshall. He met us at the airport Thursday. He's been our guide and host. Done a fantastic job since meeting us. He took us down on a wonderful trip down to Sedona yesterday. I've been to the Grand Canyon, and that's that's good to look down there and see all that, but Sedona was an entirely different operation as far as I'm concerned. Looking it up at those beautiful... Red rock formations, that some power greater than myself obviously is designed or allowed to form there. Those beautiful irregular figures, here's one that looks like a skyscraper and one hill, and over here some jagged things. For me, it was an awesome, awesome view, and Marshall was kind enough to take us up to the scene where you used to have this convention on the top of that hill up there near the airport, another beautiful sight. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience, and I am indeed a very grateful alcoholic. I'm also grateful for being here and this morning this afternoon, yesterday and uh, this morning. Some old friends, some old friends I haven't seen in years. Ted G is here from Sunset City. I knew Ted back in Washington in the early 60s. Dottie H, our speaker tomorrow morning, known Dottie for many, many years from Long Beach. Les from uh, Phoenix. Most of you know Les. He's an old time and One of the winners I've tried to stick close to over the years. I've known Les for over 25 years. And Walt, our taper. I met Walt at a convention in Jacksonville, Florida. There's a guy named Larry here, a Marine, that says he got sober at the, one of my favorite groups in Alexandria, the Men's Stag on Saturday afternoon. <clears throat> and so it's wonderful to see all these old friends renew old friendships. But even more important, it's wonderful to meet the some 1,500 brand new friends of mine in the audience tonight that I never met till this weekend. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, that's what A is all about as far as I'm concerned. Alcoholics Anonymous is composed of over 2 million real close friends of mine located in 136 countries around the world the majority of whom I haven't met yet. (laughs) But they are there, and what a warm, comforting feeling. What peace of mind, what serenity to know that I can walk into an AA group in 136 countries around the world tonight and find the same love and compassion and understanding I find in this meeting. Fantastic. Fantastic. As my sponsor told me many many years ago, we are rich in the things that money can't buy in Alcoholics Anonymous. Rich in the things that money can't buy. See, I can't buy those two million friends. I can't buy the peace of mind that goes along with a sobriety. It's a priceless treasure the good Lord gave me and gave most of you. So, I am indeed great for all these friends, and friends are another reason that I came here at this convention. Two reasons I came to convention, to be honest with you. <coughs> One is, I mentioned, to uh, renew old friendships. Number two, to make new friends. <coughs> and that's what this is all about. Now, as far as the speakers at convention is concerned, eh, yes and no. Over the years, you know, you heard one, you heard them all. It's the same old story: drank whiskey for a while, got in trouble, went to A, stopped drinking, started going to me, practiced the spiritual principles, and things got better. Same story, night in, night out, year in, year out. A few exceptions and a few changes here and there. Sometimes this is an old A myth that we try to destroy. There's no A myth to the newcomers, I don't know whether it's, at least back on the East Coast, we tell the newcomers, don't drink, go to meetings, and things will get better. Just don't drink, go to meetings, and things will get better. Well, most of you know that's a myth. (laughs) Many of us come to A, stop drinking, go to meetings. And things don't get better. We solve our drinking problem, but we don't solve our living problems, and things get worse. But the point is, we get better. You and I get better, and that's what this program is all about. The program doesn't say anything about changing it, or changing them, or changing things. The program changes us, changes you and me. The Alanon program is the same for the Alanon. Good example, last night you heard Joe give us that terrific message. He came day, got sober, started practicing spiritual principles, and his, I think his second son was born with club feet. Things got worse, and that's real bad. But Joe got better. And through the spiritual principles of this program, and the grace of God in the medical profession, that young man got better too, and got well and recovered. And you heard uh, <clears throat> our friend uh, Mary Pearl today. Remember Mary Pearl, the girl whose one of her character defects is drowning, drunken husbands.
1: <clears throat>
0: I'm glad she prayed that defect away, and I'm sure her husband is, too. <clears throat> anyway, Mary Pearl, again, is one of an old friend I met Mary Pearl, she mentioned in a I was the AA speaker at an Al-Anon conference in a beautiful state park in in Arkansas some years ago. And you heard Mary Pearl. Boy, she had a lot of problems. She got into Al-Anon, got in the program. But see, this program teaches us to live peacefully with unsolved problems. Because many of us have unsolved problems. These things don't get right. Things don't go the way we want them, the way they should go. And many of us do have unsolved problems. They're not going to be solved today, tomorrow, next year, next month. You don't know. Maybe never. But by living by these spiritual principles, following directions, getting a good sponsor, we are able, as my sponsor said, have the maturity to live peacefully with unsolved problems. And that's, again, a great gift. I am from Washington, D.C. My home group is the A's and Nays. We meet in the Capitol of the United States on Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock. The Capitol, in case you aren't acquainted with Washington, haven't been there recently, the Capitol is that building with the big dome on top (laughs) in the Pennsylvania Avenue. And we meet there every Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock. The Capitol is closed to the public until 9 o'clock. But you go in, all the entrances are marked closed, closed, closed. A lot of tight security these days. <clears throat> but uh, you tell the policemen, and the policemen all over the place whisper those magic words Alcoholics Anonymous and then, the doors open the red carpet comes out we have our meeting there every Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock <clears throat> we had an old A friend of mine from Denver Yale H many of you may know Yale he's an old timer 40 some years I think Yale came to a meeting a couple months ago he comes in every so often he you know, said, so, you know, it's amazing how things change here in Washington. So said, I was a cop 50 years ago here on the Capitol Police Force, right here in the Capitol. He says, my job is to keep drunks out of the Capitol. says, now you've got to be a drunk to get in the Capitol. It is a program of change, a program of change. <clears throat> well, I've been here ten minutes and had a drink yet. I better get to the problem tonight. The problem is not, I'm not going to discuss alcohol, I'm going to discuss recovery, because most of you have heard plenty of drunkologues. I'll start at the beginning. I worked my way through Columbia University leading a dance band, playing in it the first two years and then leading it when the leader graduated. This is in the thirties. Had my first, as you know, booze and the dance band business goes hand in hand. Had my first drink as a freshman at Columbia in 1933. I was 18 years old. And for those of you who are slow in your mathematics, you can stop figuring. I'll give you the answer. (laughs) I'm 77 years old. Isn't that a nice round figure? 77. Sounds wonderful. Speaking of getting old, I was uh, back at Columbia last week, a year ago tonight, celebrating the 55th anniversary of my graduating class, class of 37 at Columbia. And when you go back to your 55th college anniversary class, you can't get by with this middle-aged crap anymore. You've got to admit getting old, old, old. <laughs> In fact, I remember when I was turned 70, talking to my sponsor, Bob P., I said, Bob, I'm worried about getting old. He said, worried about getting old? He said, I got news for you, you are old.
1: <laughs>
0: However, there's always a positive side, good side. <clears throat> Growing old in AA does have its pluses too. For instance, my chronological age is taken care of some of my character defects. To be real honest with you, take a little fifth step, to be real honest, I haven't had a major problem with lust in a long time. (laughs) So it's not all bad. In fact, growing old in A is a wonderful, wonderful experience, and I love every minute of it. But back to that first drink at Columbia in 1933, freshman at Columbia, I was introduced to booze. I was taught to drink Scotch because gentlemen drink Scotch whiskey. I was taught to drink scotch, because that's what gentlemen drink, and I learned, I guess, fairly good students. I learned fairly rapidly, and booze became my best friend. Booze was something I could count on. It was there all the time. Never let me down. Booze made good things better and better things best. Booze lessened the pain of reality. It made it acceptable. So I jumped right into this thing, enjoyed it, every drink. I was wonderful, wonderful life. I just couldn't get enough of this booze. There was a great actress in those days. Her name was Mae West. You younger people don't know. Ask your mother and dad about her. She was quite a star in those days. (laughs) Mae had a one-liner that I thought described my feelings towards alcohol just beautifully, a very succinct definition of my relationship with booze. Mae said, too much of a good thing is wonderful. And that's the way I felt about this booze. Just couldn't get enough of that wonderful stuff. And booze, its name, as I said, my best friend for many years. Booze was the basic ingredient in gracious living, and I loved it. I enjoyed it for years and years and years. Booze was very kind to me. As that dance band in Columbia. Went on a lot of cruises out of New York City in those days. To Europe every summer. First. American dance band to play in the Soviet Union in 1935 and the basis of all this gracious living was booze. Good, wonderful booze. So I've had a lot of happy, happy living in my life thanks to alcohol. However, unfortunately, I had a disease called alcoholism. It wasn't apparent at the time but it was there. And as you all know, it's a progressive disease and mine progressed just like it does. And I'll jump over the drinking days till 1955 I was an air attaché I was the uh, career officer in the United States Air Force the air attaché at the American Embassy in Warsaw Poland this is the height of the Cold War and I had a job there as the air attaché the job was intelligence of course report on the Polish Air Force and the Soviet Air Force and the Polish People's Republic followed by secret police night and day I, my wife my daughter and my dog followed by secret police everywhere we went I had to notify the secret police every time I left the city limits. So I had all the pressures, as if an alcoholic needs pressures, and I was drinking around the clock. <clears throat> and here is where, after drinking an awful lot for a long period of time, social drinking, I built up, without realizing, I'd crossed that line from social drinking into addiction. I'd become dependent upon alcohol, I'd become an alcoholic. I say I became an alcoholic in Warsaw because that's where I lost my choice. If it's inherited, and there's very good evidence that there is a relationship, genetic relationship with this disease, my father died, a practicing alcoholic, at 43 years old. So I may have been born an alcoholic. I don't know, and it's immaterial. I say I became an alcoholic in Warsaw because this is where I lost my choice. Up until then, I drank because I wanted to drink with nice people in nice places, that gracious living, things were wonderful. No problems. But suddenly in Warsaw, I realized I had to drink to live. I had to drink to function. I couldn't go to my office. I couldn't sign letters. I couldn't do anything. There was some booze there. I had lost my choice. I had to drink to live, and I had to drink to function. <clears throat> Being an Air Force, I had to share the Air Force goes first class. And we had a beautiful 16-room villa on the outskirts of Warsaw across the Vistula with five live-in servants. <clears throat> My wife would have breakfast served in bed every morning while she was having breakfast. I would sneak into the pantry. And then this, again, alcoholics still planned, even in our drinking days. We plan ahead a little bit. And the night before, I'd stashed in a 16-ounce silver goblet along with the ingredients so there'd be nothing diluted. Orange juice, vodka, Champagne So while my wife's having breakfast in bed I'd sneak into the pantry And pour myself a 16-ounce goblet Of one-third orange juice One-third vodka And one-third champagne And that was the way I would start the day and it was a beautiful way to start the day <laughs> Now we have a slogan in A: Don't analyze, utilize Don't analyze, utilize when I came into New York in 64, it was slogans every meeting place. I don't see it very often anymore, but it's still a good slogan. Don't analyze, utilize. Because most of us come to this club and start analyzing. So it's still a great slogan. However, over the years, I've taken the privilege of analyzing this drink. And as you know, the old the doctor, medical press say, you, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. <laughs> you got to have a good strong breakfast bacon, eggs and all that stuff well I don't know about you but in my drinking days I couldn't face eggs in the morning much less eat them however that orange juice full of vitamin C
1: <laughs>
0: that filled their breakfast requirement. and those of you with the shakes in the morning you know you've got to have a hair of the dog that bit you and that 150 proof Polish vodka into that decanter <clears throat> that took care of the a bit of the hair of the dog that bit me, and it pulled in those nerve endings where you could sign your name and kill those butterflies in your stomach. You got the back feeling almost normal. And that champagne satisfied the snob requirements. <laughs> I'm not choosing you, but I had a snob requirement. I've noticed over years... Atish, I mean excuse me, alcoholics have snob requirements at all levels. The champagne drinker, he looks down on the liquor drinker, the guy that drinks booze. The booze drinker looks down on the beer drinker the wine drinker. The wine drinker looks down on the beer drinker. And the beer drinker looks down on the guy under the under the bridge that's drinking can heat. So no matter what level there's a snobbery level above you or below you. Anyway, this get down all right, get to the office. Feeling a little better now. Being the I to say my office was top secret. As I told you, strict intelligence, secret police job is to keep me from doing my job. So the office was top classified top secret, and no one, not even the ambassador, could come to my office on the third floor unless he was cleared by the Marine Guard on the first floor. So that gave me complete privacy. I had written the Air Force that over in Warsaw, had a few requirements we needed. I needed a 16 cube cube. 16 foot cubic what am I trying to say 16 cubic foot refrigerator
1: to store my film supplies
0: constant temperature repository for my film supplies and they sent me a beautiful one it sat about here and here was my desk and there was about one cubic foot of that fridge taken up with film supplies, with restaurants, you know what? All kinds of booze, drinks, everything. So it gave me complete privacy. I could sit at my desk and here was the booze supply right there within reach, complete privacy. And no one could come to the office. They were now down the three floors below. It took them at least five minutes to climb those three floors of steps, no elevators. So I had complete privacy, sit there and drink all day, writing my reports, doing my job, knowing that nobody's going to catch me. So I was drinking around the clock. Warship was a hardship post to be two years. We stayed three because I never had it so good in terms of material things before or after.
1: <laughs>
0: Came back to the States in 58 and on a debriefing tour in New York and Washington DC, where I had as the Adichette, I had to report to the Director of Intelligence, Army, Navy, Air, the CIA, the National Security Agency, the State Department, all the intelligence community. And I was supposed to have all the answers, the expert on the Polish Air Force and the Soviet Air Force in the Polish People's Republic. They were asking me a lot of questions. And I was supposed to have the answers after three years. Well, for this alcoholic to have answers, I'd have some booze inside of me. So I'd get up in the morning, have a couple of shots wherever I'd stay, the BOQ hotel, to get me started, to get well, <clears throat> and get to the first briefing. And I carried my, I had to have booze with me around the clock. And two meetings, the mor- two briefings in the morning, two in the afternoon. So I had to have a supply with me. So I carried my booze around in an attache case, labeled "Top Secret" for obvious reasons. <laughs> and I'd get through the first briefing. Say, gentlemen, excuse me, go to the men's room. My attache case has classified material; must take it with me. <laughs> into the john, glurp, glurp, Back to the next briefing, so forth throughout the morning and afternoon. Get back to the BOQ, wherever I was staying that night. And face the cold, hard facts, I'd consumed one quart of booze, nipping between briefings, plus the normal cocktails at lunch and dinner. And in a moment of lucidity, I admitted this was a little beyond the realm of social drinking. <laughs> what to do? What to do? This fantastic computer we have in our mind. They talk about all these computer things, all they're big, more modern computers, bigger and better. Still, the greatest computer in the world, in my opinion, is that brain we have between these two ears. We started this business a long time ago. Anyway, my computer went to work, this was 1958, back 17 years before, 1940, excuse me, 1940. I was a member of the National Guard in New York Horse Cavalry, the Horse Cavalry. We were inducted for one year back to duty to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, and in March of 1941, we are a very bunch of real snobs from New York City. We went up there to Fort Devens in January of 41, inducted for one year. And there was an old Fort Devens was there, been permanent post for years. They'd built a lot of new things for the World War II inductees. So we had a part of it down at the far end, the new part. We built our own officer's club. We didn't go to the club, the big red brick one. No, we built our own down there. We dressed for dinner every night, 5.30 happy hour. Boots and britches, Sam Brown, the whole bit. Bunch of real New York snobs. And someone brought in that Jack Alexander article, March 1st, 1941, the first national publicist publicity on alcoholics, alcoholism and AA, the Jack Alexander article, and read excerpts to it over the bar during happy hour. <laughs> and I remember our reaction. Mine, most of my officers sit there throwing down this hot... Uh, martini said pity and sorrow for those poor alcoholics yeah they had joined Day, and they were going to live god bless them that's great but they could never drink again as long as they lived i guess it was better than dying i thought but i don't know sounded me sounded to me like a fate worse than death they could never drink again as long as they lived And that was our reaction in 1941. Here it was 17 years later, and that thing went through my mind. Alcoholics Anonymous. I wonder if I'm an alcoholic. My next assignment was Hamilton Air Force Base, San Francisco. And I decided that I remember that article. I thought I remembered it. I had read it 17 years before. I remembered, I thought that article said, alcoholics could not stop drinking on their own. They had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's how they survived. That's how they are able to stop drinking. They could not stop drinking on their own. Well, this alcoholic mind says, well, wait a minute. If you can stop drinking on your own, you're not an alcoholic. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. And I stopped drinking on my own. May 1st, 1940, uh, excuse me, 1958, May 1st. Stopped on my own in San Francisco. Excuse me, stopped in New York City, because I had a brand new Chrysler with those big fins on it heading for San Francisco. And I don't know how, I haven't been able to figure this thing out. The psychiatrist told me I didn't have, I had a little withdrawal, but not the one you would expect from drinking a quarter boot a of day for years, just suddenly boom, just cold turkey. The psychiatrist explained it later, said, well, you saw and sent him first, a brand new car heading across country. And you were in, you were motivated, you were proving that you could stop drinking on your own. You were motivated. And I guess that's what kept me through. Anyway, got through to California, back to gymnasium, lost 20 pounds of fat I'd picked up in Europe, chasing the cross ball around, never felt better physically in my life. Went back to church, playing lips. I hadn't been to church in three years in war, so There were no open churches. Went back to church, paying lip service, going through the singing the hymns and mouthing the prayers. It looked good. At the office, boss was saying nice things, occasional pat on the back. Everything looked great on the outside, but inside I was the most bored, resentful, unhappy, sober person in the state of California. <laughs> Obviously, I was dry. I wasn't sober. <clears throat> but I couldn't figure this thing out. If booze had been my problem and I'd stopped drinking, why wasn't I well? Why didn't I feel good? Diplomats would come through. We met in Europe. We'd take them on the grand tour up the top of the mark. And there they were raising their champagne or whatever, and toasting that beautiful San Francisco Bay Vista. And there I was with a cocoa or ginger ale trying to be charming. And I hated those people. <laughs> and I hated the people Saturday night at the officers club at the big dance. Everybody having fun, enjoying life. And I was on the wagon. But I couldn't figure this thing out. Why was it? If booze was my problem and I stopped drinking, why wasn't I happy? Well, what I didn't know was I had a disease called alcoholism, and this is a threefold disease, mental, physical, and spiritual. And on my own, still in the driver's seat, I'd been able to cope with the physical aspects of this disease. I'd stopped drinking. And ladies and gentlemen, if you put the plug in the jug, you can take care of the physical aspects of this disease. But on my own, still in the driver's seat, I had not been able to cope with the mental and spiritual aspects of our disease. I'd stopped drinking, but that's all I'd done. It was a life without meaning, a dry life, wasn't sober, a dry life without meaning, without purpose, without direction. A dry life, sober life, without AA. And it wasn't enough for me. This was late 58. I decided I'd give this thing a good shake. Eight months, not a drop. So decided to try a little social drinking. For you who remember 58, this was the year the California wineries brought out Thunderbird. <laughs> and that was my introduction to social drinking.
1: <laughs>
0: I remember telling them we were having... Guests in for dinner, I mean for cocktails every day during my eight months sobriety. I still make drinks for my wife and my friends every day. It didn't bother me. I remember Grandin and going to have a little Thunderbird with the guests this afternoon while they're having their martinis. And the first day, a little old-fashioned glass, a couple lumps of ice, two ounces of Thunderbird. A couple days later, a double old-fashioned glass. Two lumps of ice filled with Thunderbird. A week later, no ice, double old-fashioned glass full of Thunderbird. And about a month later, I realized I was drinking a quart of Thunderbird while my guests were having their two martinis. And I think about four months later, I was back on the hard stuff, drinking more than I had been when I went on the wagon eight months previous, proving to myself without realizing it, the progressiveness of this disease. Sobered up again and... In the 60, when the Air Force sent me back to Randolph to get checked out in jets, we all had to get jet qualified. Again, I had a purpose, motivated to stay sober for six weeks to get my jet ticket, because if I didn't get jet qualified, I would be grounded and lose my flight pay. So I had a reason. Stayed sober six weeks at Randolph, got my jet ticket back to San Francisco. And I think I stayed sober another three weeks before I rationalized, I could fly those jets, certainly with more confidence and, I thought, more precision, Two shots of booze under my belt, and with a month drinking around the clock again. And by the grace of God, and that's the only way I can describe it, I flew jets for four years, never had an emergency, got by with it. About this time, I found a beautiful way to spend Sunday morning: get my wife and daughter off to church, I reckon seven days a week in those days. Get my daughter, wife, and daughter off to church, and uh, call her down down to the flight line, set up a little t burg. It's a Singing as a jet trainer, get my wife and daughter off to church, have a few drinks at home, to get well, down to the flight line, take off on a local flight over San Francisco, 30,000, 35,000 feet over San Francisco Bay, call the tower, turn on KABL, the San Francisco Good Music Station, take push back that oxygen mask, pull out that flash of Jack Daniel's black label, sipping whiskey, and sip that whiskey and do Lazy H over San Francisco Bay. <laughs> and that's a beautiful way to spend Sunday morning, ladies and gentlemen. This weather reminds me that. What a beautiful day to wait. Tomorrow morning be great. Except one thing. I can't drink safely. So that ruins it. Anyway, 45 minutes up there enjoying. I remember it was a beautiful sight. San Francisco Bay down there in those days of course long before AA some people use the expression earth people I've never liked and i and never use it but I would look down those people down there I didn't call them earth people I called them peasants <laughs> <laughs> those poor peasants down there they were existing and I was living and it was living it was a beautiful 45 minutes but in 45 minutes the jet fuel run out my Jack Daniels run out back to that damn reality that reality they had so much trouble with 1961 came back to Washington, D.C. I had the best job there was in the Air Force with someone of my background. I was a member of the faculty of the National War College, the highest educational institution in the United States government. Two-thirds students were officers in the Army Navy, and Navy. one-third State Department future ambassadors. Terrific college. Again, three of the most interesting years of my life in spite of my drinking. But here... And I had a wonderful job, best job in the world for some of my background. very child, wonderful wife and daughter had the world by the tail, and I drank it all away. Then the Air Force called me in one day and let me know that they could probably get along pretty well without my services. I took a dim view of the three-star general and said, "How, you're doing a good job here at the college, but you smell like a brewery all the time." And every day we'd go up there for lunch, and you and another officer my calf. You go up there to the bar and you drink your lunch. You're setting a bad example for the students. The faculty you're supposed to set a good example. And he warned me to cut out this crap. Well, I cut it out for a while. You know how i cut it out. Well, okay, okay, I'll, I'll go along with the program. But three or four months later, back to the boozing, and less than a year later, he called me and let me know the Air Force would do pretty well, probably without my services. <clears throat> I had a choice. They didn't kick me out, they gave me a choice. I could voluntarily retire, put in for voluntary retirement. I had the years in. Or they would court-martial me and I would lose my pension. So it wasn't too hard to make the (laughs) decision. So according to the record, I voluntarily retired from the Air Force for 30 years service. So here I was, kicked out of the Air Force, 1964, bankrupt mentally, physically, spiritually, financially, a hopeless, helpless alcoholic, unemployed, unemployable. I couldn't figure this thing out. What the hell happened? What the hell happened? All those plans and all those good jobs that went around the world in a diplomatic status and living it up, shape business, all gone. My whole life was shot. Total chaos. Total disaster. And I couldn't figure out why. I knew booze had something to do with it, but I didn't know it was all booze because I knew a lot of Air Force officers I thought that drank as much as I did. They were still on duty, still living it up, still drinking it up. Why me? Why me? Why me? I couldn't figure this thing out, so I said, well, what I need is a good psychiatrist. So I got a hold of an Air Force psychiatrist who was serving his two years in the Air Force, just completed school, and I told him my sad story. I said, Doc, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to save you a lot of couch time. I drank too much, I guess, but I'll tell you why I drank. The Air Force doesn't understand me. <laughs> the Air Force hadn't promoted me in 15 years. I was a lieutenant colonel, permanent rank in the regular Air Force for 15 years. I held full colonel jobs in the Pentagon twice. I already say was a full colonel job. Director training at Hamilton, full colonel job straight through, and never got promoted. Well, you probably know why I didn't, but you know. <laughs> And some years later, one of the colonels on the general on the promotion board told me why. I said, How your, your name used to come up? You're at the top of the list. you have the best job, a good background. But someone said, Yeah, but he drinks too much. And one little thing like that, and your name was taken off the list. So that was why I didn't get promoted for 15 years. Was, he drank, good officer, but he drinks too much. Anyway, I went to see the Sakai. I told him about all this stuff, I told him, why I drank, the Air Force didn't understand me, my wife didn't understand me. Told him the truth about all these things. <laughs> and he listened to this jazz, he was a very patient psychiatrist. He listened to this jazz for 30 days, <laughs> seeing him every day, military hospital. And again, by the grace of God, and that's the only way I can describe it, the doctor was a recent graduate of Columbia PS, College of Physicians and Surgeons, good old Columbia, one of the first medical colleges to teach about alcoholism and send their doctors to 12, a minimum of 12 AA meetings. This guy knew about alcoholism, and he knew about AA. This was 1964. In those days, very few psychiatrists knew about alcoholism at all. Joe First describes as most of the psychiatrists of those days looked upon alcoholism as a volume deficiency. <laughs> and they did. They did. So and I could have very well picked one of those guys. Oh, stop drinking, take these tablets. But again, by the grace of God, I got this doc that knew all about it. And he after 30, he said, Hal, you're not psychotic. You're not crazy. You're an alcoholic. I can't help you with your booze problem. I'm a psychiatrist. He said, I know an organization that can help you called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I followed directions, thank God. I guess that was the... <clears throat> And I looked back on it, the start of my spiritual awakening, because up until that point I was fighting, fighting, fighting. No, no, no. Why me? Why me? Why me? And this doctor who I, I respected his profession, his background, good old Columbia man, I said, yes, sir. And I went to my first day of meeting November 17, 1964, Lenox Hill Group in good old New York City. And by the grace of God in this program, I haven't found it necessary or desirable to have a drink or any mood-changing drug since then. Only by the grace of God in this program. So here I was in AA. <clears throat> here I was in AA in New York City. <clears throat> Those days, three day, uh, three meetings a day minimum, no big deal. Go to noonday meeting, and all the major groups had a beginners meeting at seven thirty to 15 and go upstairs for the speaker meeting at 8.30. So three meetings a day was no, no big deal. Four and five on Saturday and Sunday. And I jumped in this thing with both feet. <clears throat> and I've been, I guess, two or three months, but still uh, a walking zombie, still scared to say anything. When they the they that closed me and came around to me and my name is Hal, and I passed. Wasn't even grateful yet. And... Uh, <clears throat> My sponsor told me, listen, this is a program of caring and sharing. you got to say something. I said, I don't have anything to say. So we'll say something. So you had a good day, you had a bad day, you made a new friend or something. Say something, participate program of caring and sharing. So I started trying to share a little bit <clears throat> and I gradually let the information get out. I was feeling a little better now. That's uh, OK, I'm a drunk, just like the rest of you. But I want you to know I'm not a downtown drunk, I'm an uptown drunk. I'm not a refugee from the Bellevue psych ward, where many of our people came from. I'm not a drunk from the Skid Row down in the Bowery. I'm an uptown drunk from good old Columbia, that college on Broadway, 116th Street and Broadway. Now, I wasn't bragging, I was sharing, you understand that. Just sharing. And I kept on sharing discreetly I thought and I gradually let the information get shared out. Yes, I'd spent nine years of my life at Good Old Columbia and they'd given me four degrees a bachelor's, two masters, and a doctorate. Just wanna let you know you're getting a little class in your outfit. <laughs> wasn't sharing my I mean, wasn't bragging mine, it was just sharing. Just sharing my experience, strength, and hope with you. One of the old timers called me out when I said Hal you know, we see a lot of smart Alex. Actually, used a different word. Like you, come in here in New York City, and said we look upon you as one of two things: you're either an overeducated drunk or an intellectual idiot. Said have your choice; either definition applies to you. So, A took care of my academic background very early in the game. You know the old thing, the uh, old adage about, <clears throat> some people are too smart to get this program, but nobody's too dumb. My sponsor warned me. He said, if you'd been 2% smarter, you'd probably never have made it. But thank God I missed that 2% and made it. <clears throat> so I was in an A for a while, having a Third Step meeting one night. subject was the Third Step, the beginners meeting. I said, yeah, the Third Step is great. I'm beginning to feel a little better now. I was feeling better physically. The butterflies have stopped, getting sleep, and uh, mentally, my mind seemed to be clearing up. And spiritually, I thought I was making a little progress. I'd made the decision to turn my will and life over to the care of God. And I explained this to the people. Yeah, the third step is great for me. I'm, I'm coming along. I'm trying real hard. I don't drink. I go to meetings. and God, it's all yours. That was my interpretation of the third step. I said, because you know, you told me, don't, I mean, let go, let God, turn it over, turn it over. And that's the way I interpret it. Don't drink. Go to meetings. God, it's all yours. Again, one of the old-timers called me aside. said, How you either misread or misunderstood the third step? It doesn't say turn your will and your life over to God. It says, Turn your will and your life over to the care of God. So you seem to think all you have to do is to stop drinking and go to meetings and God's going to take care of everything. He says, no way, Buster! No way, not you. So let me explain something to you. He said God's not going to do anything for you. You can do it for yourself. God does the impossible. You have to do the possible. This is a program, and you a program of action, and you are the action officer. And he explained Bill Wilson's comments, quotes from Bill, about twelve and twelve. Joy of living is a the theme, and action is the key word. He said, I know you've read the big book, but I want you to study I want you to go to, <laughs> to uh, chapter 6. I want you to very carefully know the title of chapter 6. The title is not into analysis. The title is not into opinions. The title is not into discussion. The title is into action. Action, action. That's what this program is all about. Action. Remember, God does the impossible. You have to do the possible. <clears throat> and he told me something else. He said, willingness without action is fantasy. Willingness without action is fantasy. So I know you'll read in the book about willingness, honest, open minds the three essential elements of recovery, and they are indispensable. Absolutely true. And willingness is the key that opens the door. And he quoted the book. Yeah. But said, so just look at chapter 5. where it says, and now you heard it tonight, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, there's the willingness first, immediately followed by action. Then you're ready to take certain steps. There's the action that immediately follows the willingness. Then in the eighth step, made a list of all we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. There's the willingness first, but immediately in step nine, the action made direct amends. So throughout this program, willingness first but immediately followed by action. Willingness without action is fantasy. They quoted all the famous old New York catcher uh, Yogi Berry, famous one-liner about action. You know, Yogi is a famous for you young folk, a hero on the Yankee Diamond Yankee uh, uh, baseball team, Yankee Stadium, the catcher. He was known as an action man on the diamond for many, many years when the Yanks were winning every year. Yogi had one-liner about action. Yogi said, When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Action, action, action. Don't sit around. So I took another look at step three, and here's what I came up with, ladies and gentlemen. And this was many years ago. I formed a partnership with God, my higher power, whom I choose to call God. Higher power. God is my senior partner. I'm the junior partner. As in all partnerships, the senior partner does the long-range planning. I do the day-to-day legwork that I'm supposed to claim uh, qualified to do. It's a very close partnership. I don't have to go through any secretaries or telephone calls to get to my senior partner. Available at all times and all places for whatever help, guidance, support that I need. And I'm aware of the long-range plans. I know there are deadlines next week, next month, next year. But I'm not responsible for those deadlines next week, next month, next year. My responsibility in carrying out these long-range plans is one day at a time. Sometimes one day is too much, an hour at a time, five minutes at a time, little hunks I can manage. So it's been a very close partnership, ladies and gentlemen. If you're having any trouble managing your lives, may I suggest you look into this partnership Understand, a few partnerships still open. The price is right. The market's going up again next week, so it's a good time to buy in. (laughs) There's a Jesuit priest named Al Grau. God bless his soul. Al Grau is my vintage. Same vintage in AA. Al died of cancer some years ago in Florida. Al summed this partnership with God concept up in eight words, much better than I can. Al said, without God, I can't. Without me, he won't. Without God, I can't. Without me, he won't. And that sums up the partnership with God that's helped me to accept reality, the thing I had so much trouble with all these years. The last few minutes I have, I want to talk about my favorite subject, gratitude. I came in here, I was told that I should be a grateful alcoholic. I don't know about you, but I heard that guy stand up to put him first one of the first open speaker meetings. Said my name is so and so, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I told my sponsor, "What do you mean grateful alcoholic? He's grateful he can't drink and have fun anymore." <laughs> my sponsor, said, "Well, you don't have to be a grateful alcoholic. You can be an ungrateful alcoholic if you want to, as long as you don't drink." However, he said, most of these people you've been associating with, these winners, these guys and gals with a smile on their face, are all grateful alcoholics. And he said, he explained to me that gratitude was the basic ingredient in humility, and humility was the basic ingredient in anonymity. And anonymity was the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. He told me if I wanted the roses that came in with this program, I had to accept the thorns, because roses have thorns. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, I've had to face the thorns of reality. I live in Washington, (laughs) D.C. And things don't go the way I think they ought to go. The reality there gets pretty bad. You pick up the Washington Post every morning. Bad deal. As most of you know, Washington is the murder capital of the world. At any rate, I have to learn to accept this reality. So he told me that no matter, I'm grateful for the thorns, what I'm trying to say, because they make me appreciate the roses all the more. Learn to be grateful for the thorns. And he told me another little thing. He said, you know that there's a law of physics. that two things cannot occupy the same place at the same time. Therefore, if I have a heart full of gratitude, there'll be no room in my heart or my life for anger fear, guilt, remorse, self-pity, resentments, all those things that drive an alcoholic back to the bottom. So no matter how bad it gets, no matter what they do to me, even though they are wrong and I'm right, If I use the tools you've given me, if I practice these principles that you've taught me, the spiritual principle of the 12 steps, if I use the tools that come from an attitude of gratitude, gratitude is a mother of all virtues. In other words, if I face that situation of that individual with patience and tolerance and kindness and love and compassion and humility and understanding. I will be able to happily accept any situation or any person, male or female, that comes down the pike. You have taught me that misery is optional. Misery is optional. I can't change reality, but I can change my attitude towards reality. And that's why I try to continue to live that attitude of gratitude. I've been, uh, I I want to stress that word, happily, not begrudgingly accept things. Happily, because that's what this program is all about. Now, I know we take a dim view of these self-appointed A-gurus who stand behind these A-podia and quote the big book by page number, paragraph sometimes. There's usually one in every group. However, on page 133... (laughs) It says, and I quote, God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Right? That's quote direct from the big book. Happy, joyous, and free. Another little quote from the preceding page I love to use. And it says, quote again, We absolutely insist on enjoying life. That's what this program is all about as far as I'm concerned, ladies and gentlemen. Happy, joyous, and free, enjoying life. A couple of months later, my sponsor said, where's your gratitude list? I said, my what? He said, your gratitude list. Haven't you written a gratitude list? I don't have anything to be grateful for, remember? so got kicked out of the Air Force. Unemployed, unemployable, bankrupt, mentally, physical, spiritual, financially. Well, I'm going to be grateful for I'm staying sober a day at a time. But you know. He said, well, I'll help you with your gratitude list. Get out a paper and pencil. Yes, sir. He says, I'll write, I'll dictate, and you write. Yes, sir. Okay, write down, Hal Marley, gratitude list. Yes, sir. Number one, you're grateful you're alive. Mm, Grateful I'm alive. Two, you're grateful you're sober. Grateful I'm sober. Three, you're grateful you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Grateful member of A. Four, You're grateful for about 300 friends right here in the immediate New York area you met in meetings that you didn't know three months ago. 300 brand new friends you didn't know three months ago when you came in here. 300 brand new friends who do anything in the world they can, who love you and understand you and do anything they can to help you stay sober one day at a time. Grateful for 300 new friends, yeah. Grateful a place to sleep tonight. You got a place to sleep. Grateful sleep. Grateful you got some food on the table. Grateful got some to eat. Grateful you guys are. Wait a minute. Don't have a job. Got kicked out of the air force. Grateful for you don't have a job gives you more time to go to AA meetings. <coughs> Went to a lot of AA meetings. And I still go to a lot of AA meetings. Because A taught me, and A, I learned to listen. I don't know about you, but I didn't do much listening back when I was drinking. No reason for me to listen. You had all the answers. You listened to me. And that was my attitude during my drinking days. But in A, I learned to listen. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I listen to learn. And I learn something at every A meeting I go to. And I don't want to tell you how many meetings I go to, and I don't embarrass the newcomers, scare them away. Anyway, I still go to a lot of meetings. I learned something at every a meeting I go to, either a new learning, an old learning reinforced, or what I call a negative learning. I learn what not to do if I want to stay sober a day at a time. <clears throat> so I still go to a lot of meetings. I still get a lot of learning. I learn something every day in AA. A few months later, you got your graduate this? Yes, sir. Checking it every day. Now, I still check a gratitude list, ladies and gentlemen. I told you tonight I got a long, and it gets longer and longer and longer. And still, I have don't misunderstand me, the newcomers. <clears throat> there's still days I said I live in Washington. Still days where things don't go my way. They're wrong, and I'm right. But I get out that gratitude list. Sure, there's some minuses in my life over here, but look at the pluses. Look at the pluses. So on the seemingly bad days, and they're seemingly bad; they're not really bad. These seeming bad days where things don't go my way, just get off that gratitude list and look at the pluses and those negatives seem to be pushed away. So I still use my gratitude list. Anyway, my sponsor said, now you've got your gratitude list under control. said, I want you to realize that no big deal sitting around these meetings saying, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. said, words are cheap. Words are cheap. says, gratitude is an action word an action word. you got to live an attitude of gratitude. So the question obviously is, how does one live an attitude of gratitude? I wouldn't uh, presume to even suggest how you should live an attitude of gratitude. Anymore, I'll tell you how to work the steps. It's an individual program. Easy does it, but do it. I will share with you how I try to live an attitude of gratitude a day at a time. This morning, as soon as I open my eyes, I crawl out of the sack and get on my knees. And I thank God for those three basics. Thank God I'm alive. Thank God I'm sober. And thank God I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the way I start every day of my life, no matter where I am in terms of geography, no matter what the weather is, no matter what my program is for the day, says, oh my, I have those three things going for me. I figure those three things going for me, I'm in pretty good shape. Not just to put up with another day, I'm in pretty good shape to live and thoroughly enjoy another 24 hours of the AA way of life. Because that's what it is for me, ladies and gentlemen. A is not something I joined, it's something I live. So on my knees in the morning and on my knees at night, Pretty simple way, to let the good Lord know I'm grateful. What about nine to five out in the real world, facing that reality that I had so much trouble with all those years when I had to pour booze on that reality to make it acceptable? That reality is there today, worse than it was in those days, and I can't pour booze on it anymore. How do I accept that reality nine to five? Prayer, ladies and gentlemen, has become increasingly important in my life. My first sponsor, God bless the soul, the Methodist minister, Thomas Wilde Lovering, Jr. Tom passed on about three months before Chuck did in 84. Tom taught me a lot about prayer. He referred me to Norman Vincent Peale's little tome on action prayers, thinking prayers, shooting prayers. Call it what you may. To me, they're conscious contacts with God. There's a little prayer in the 24-hour book. It's become more useful in my daily life. Don't misunderstand me. The serenity prayer is still a standby. It's still there, number one. It never seems to wear out. It's durable, believe me. <laughs> but this little prayer on January 12th, you to look it up, tells my story. It says, quote, I pray that I may be grateful for the things I have received and do not deserve. I pray that this gratitude will make me truly humble. It reminds me from whence I came. It reminds me that my sobriety is a gift from God, an undeserved gift, pure case of serendipity. second part about humility reminds me of the definition my sponsor gave me many years ago. It says, humility is a recognition of the allness of God and the nothingness of self. Humility is a recognition of the allness of God and the nothingness of self. Of myself, I am nothing. And I was leading a closed meeting in the Washington area some years ago. Closed meeting the subject was a third step prayer. And I quoted that line, Relieve me of the bondage of self. That's what I have to do. Get self out of the way. And I was quoting another of my morning readings, <clears throat> the uh, Daily Word of God Calling, May 3rd. Kill self now. And one of my good friends saying, well, you deserve a little credit. You go to a lot of meetings, you've been sober for a few twenty-four hours. You deserve a little credit on your own. You're here doing things." I said, wait a minute, look at the record. Look at the record. When Self ran the show, as I've told you, Self ran the show for forty-nine years. And there were some good years in there. There were some fantastic years in there in my Air Force career, and those good jobs. But we pay off on end results. And I told you the end result in 49 years with Self running the show, me, myself, and I. Total disaster after 49 years, and we pay off on end results. And that was the end result for me when Self ran the show after 49 years. So I had to kill Self, just like it says in the book. Kill Self, kill Self now. And I was repeating this phrase a couple of times, and a young lady came in late, sat on by that seat, and asked her, what's the subject? Her seatman said, suicide, suicide. <laughs> but that's what I have to do. I have to commit suicide a day at a time for the rest of my life. <clears throat> There's another little book. By the way, any newcomers, and I know there are a lot of newcomers here. I mentioned God Calling. I don't want to mention another book, Brother Lawrence's book. But for you, I'll give you the same advice Chuck Chamberlain gave me in 1964, 65, first time I heard him. Chuck told me and about 3,000 other people in the audience that the old Biltmore Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, said, everything you need to know as long as you live is contained in the first 160 pages, 64 pages of the big book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I need to know and you solve any problem as long as I live. It's contained in those first 164 pages, because those first 164 pages, that most of you know, explains the spiritual principles enunciated in the 12 steps of this program. No matter what problem I ever have as long as I live, the solution to that problem is contained somewhere in these spiritual principles explained in that first 164 pages. So for the newcomer, forget about these other books. Stick to those first 164 pages at least till you reach that first level of sobriety. And I don't know what the level is out here. The first level of sobriety on the East Coast is when your sponsor lets you go to a meeting by yourself. When you reach that level, then you're allowed some of these complimentary readings. But up until then, 164 pages, that's all. Anyway, this other book I mentioned, the Practice of the Presence of God. Again, a friend of mine, some years ago, said, Al, there's a new book out. I want you to get a hold of it. And I said, something Hazelin published? He said, no, no, hazelin published an old book, actually. Just got a reprint of it. <coughs> it was written in 1666, and That Alcoholic Mind. What do you mean 1666? My God, the language is probably archaic. And the concepts of nineteen sixty six certainly do not apply today, but I still remain teachable. Another definition of humility, I'm sure you've heard of Still try to stay teachable. And I respect this gentleman's judgment. And I got a hold of this little book, a uh, paperback, three ninety five at the bookstore. The practice of the presence of God written by Brother Lawrence. it's a series of conversations and letters he wrote. The first one is April, uh, August 3rd, 1666, and in this conversation, some period, he's explaining to him how to find God, how to turn your life over to God and find peace of mind. He said, if you want peace of mind with God, you have to turn your life completely and abundantly, your material and spiritual life, over to God. And he goes on for the next couple of places explaining what we call the third step. And he wrote this on April 3rd, 19, uh, 1666. And Brother Lawrence goes on to explain how when he first came to the monastery, he was put in the kitchen, he was bored to death, po- polishing pots and pans and cleaning up the the uh, porcelains. And he hated his job and someone told him about practicing the presence of God and suddenly he enjoyed it. He knew God was right there looking at the job he did, and he was proud of how he cleaned those pots and shined them all up, and cleaned that silver and everything else. Pretty soon he got promoted to the cobbler shop, and he loved tic-tac-toe and those shoes fixing all that, because there was God, practicing the presence of God. To I've for one minute, you historians know that Dr. Carl Jung, who I <clears throat> look upon as the godfather of the spiritual program of Alcoholics Anonymous. For the newcomers, a quick history. Doctor Carl Young, I remember, sent Roland Hazard, who had been his patient for over a year, said, "Medicine, science can't help you. The only thing to keep you to stop drink to get you to stop drinking is spiritual experience." And he ended up with uh, Doctor Sam Schumaker, the Oxford Group of the Cavalry Episcopal Church in New York City, Twenty-First Street in Gramercy Park. Roland got a hold of his friend Abby Thatcher, took him down there. He got sober. Ebby got a hold of his old friend, drunk companion Bill Wilson, he got there and he got sober. So Dr. Young, Carl Young, as far as I'm concerned, is a spiritual godfather of our beautiful program. He was indeed, if you ever read anything of his writings, a very spiritual man. He had a sign over his door, invited or not, God is present. Invited or not, God is present. Dr. Young practiced the presence of God. And he was asked, according to the storybook, by an interviewer one day for a reporter. The reporter said, Dr. Young, do you believe in God? Dr. Young said, I don't believe. I know. And that's the way I feel about this program, ladies and gentlemen. I don't believe in the power of A. I know. Because I've seen it work all these years. I've run out of time. And I just want to thank you for being here and remind you that to live an attitude of gratitude all I do is a day at a time try to practice the presence of God an awful lot of prayer conscious contacts with God call it whatever you want to and try to live by these spiritual principles and I can't sum it up any better than Bill does in the 12 and 12 where Bill says the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a group of principles spiritual in their nature which if practiced as a way of life can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. That's what you wonderful people in fantastic program have given me. A happy, useful, whole life. Restored to the human race back in the mainstream, living, loving, and thoroughly enjoying the AA way of life. I've run out of time. I was brought up in the old conservative A school that meetings should talk should be only one hour. Remember my first Brownwood retreat in 1968. I met a wonderful guy named Harold Wilson. God bless him. Harold's still going strong. I said, Harold, how are the meetings out here in Texas? They run over time. what are The hour and a half meetings? Hour and what? I said, Oh, here they're one hour. Hal. I said, Here we believe we start the meetings at 8 and we stop them at 9. We believe if they ain't bought it by 9, they ain't going to buy it tonight so if you haven't bought it tonight you've got to come back and we hear Dottie tomorrow morning and I'm sure she'll make up for any mess I might have made tonight thank you all for listening and God bless you